Grab your Bibles. Get them out, get them out. My wife says I only have two faults. Number one, I don't listen, and ah, something else, I don't know. Yeah? Good? Okay. If I got 50 cents for every math exam I failed, I'd have about $3.25 by now. (laughs) Think about it. Think on these things. If you didn't get it, just ask someone later. All right. All right. Turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 2. Today, we are continuing our series in the book of Revelation. The seven churches of Revelation is what we're focusing on. Today we are um, we're focusing on the fourth church uh, of the seven, which is the church of Thyatira. This is actually part five of the series because we did an introductory message, but we're focusing on the fourth church, uh, which is Thyatira. I'm going to put up that picture of Asia Minor. Again, this is Asia Minor, uh, modern-day Turkey, and uh, we turn from Pergamos to uh, Thyatira. Um, Thyatira, um, one of the, their claim to fame, I guess, and we'll talk about that it's not the most significant of the seven cities. Uh, in fact, it is the um, least significant of, of the seven cities. Um, Thyatira, though, was basically a military outpost for Pergamum because Pergamum was the, um, the capital of the Roman Empire in Asia Minor. And so Thyatira was kind of at the head of the valley that Pergamum was at. And basically invading armies would have to go through Thyatira to get to Pergamum. And so that's why they initially built it was as a military outpost. Jesus, of course, addresses the seven churches. He goes in clockwise order. Starts with Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, and then Thyatira. For those of you new to this series, um, it was in the year 96 AD, about 65 years after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and ascension of Jesus, uh, the apostle John was exiled to the island of Patmos for his testimony of the Lord Jesus. Emperor Domitian exiled him there because he couldn't shut him up and, it was, and he couldn't kill him. So he exiles him to the island of Patmos, and it's on that island, the island of Patmos, that John receives, and now significantly aged John, um, in his 90s, receives this revelation from the Lord Jesus that we have recorded at the very end of our Bible. It's the last book of the Bible that is recorded. Um, John, of course, the last living apostle of the original 12. All the other apostles had been martyred at this point. And I just want to um, reiterate, the message that Jesus gave to these seven churches were not just intended for those churches of that day. They were intended for us today and for all of church history. This is, you could say that that, um, it is the Lord's final instructions in the Bible. The the, the law, the prophets, the epistles, the Pauline grace epistles, the gospels had already all been penned. And then the Lord Jesus from heaven gives John this revelation of himself and of things that are yet to come in our world and, and still at this point yet to come in our world, gives him this revelation as kind of the capstone and the icing on the cake to canonize scripture. Again, Jesus, for each church, follows a pattern of exhortation that he gave to all the churches. It should be noted that the reason he gives this pattern of exhortation is because he loves the church profusely, and he wants you and me to experience 
the, the, the greatest amount of re, heavenly rewards and to have the greatest amount of joy here, now, and in this life. How many know that salvation is a free gift? You can never earn it. You can never deserve it. It's not by works. It is by, by grace through faith that we are saved. But how many know, according to the grace of God working in us, to the extent that we walk out God's plan, purpose, and destiny for our lives, there are eternal rewards for living out your purpose. And it is possible. This is well established in, in the New Testament. And even Paul, in his, the grace guy, in his, in his epistles, talks about the fact that it is possible to be heaven-bound but to lose part of your reward because you didn't live up to the grace of God and the things God want to do in you and through you. And so Jesus has this, this pattern of exhortation he gives to each of the churches. I call it the Jesus love sandwich. He starts with accommodation, a correction, a counsel, and then a crown. Jesus acknowledges and praises each of the church uh, their strengths. Here's what you're doing well. Jesus confronts their weaknesses. How many know that Jesus doesn't confront your weakness because he's mad at you? He confronts your weaknesses because he loves you, because he wants the best for you. And thank God for that. Thank God that we, we serve a God who interacts in our life and, and, you know, helps us, polishes off our rough edges. Amen? So I'm, I'm out. God's always doing that in my life, and he does that to those whom he loves. So he confronts their weaknesses. <clears throat> Jesus then offers guidance to, um, to, to each church because that's what you do for legitimate sons and daughters. And then Jesus encourages each church with a promise connected to, or a he makes a covenant with each church. If you do this, if you live this way, <clears throat> there's a covenant and there's a promise connected to it. Thyatira, the, the letter of the Lord Jesus to Thyatira, it's the longest letter out of the seven. Um, it's, it's 10 verses. Um, but Thyatira was the smallest and least significant of the towns. Last week we talked about Pergamum, which was like the capital, uh, which was, uh, it was the capital um, in the Roman providence um, in Asia. It's the capital, it's powerful. Pergamum, um, I'm sorry, Thyatira is least significant, um, but yet they get the longest letter. It's interesting, isn't it? So, um, Instead of reading the whole 10 verses, we're, we will go through every verse. But I'm not going to read the whole thing and then go through every verse, verse by verse. So we're just going to get right into it for the, for the sake of time here. Smallest and least significant town of the seven cities that Jesus addressed. Um, they had small temples of Artemis and Apollo, but nothing like the extravagant temples of Pergamos and Ephesus. The best way I think I could use to describe Thyatira is that it was a hardworking, blue-collar town. Okay, it wasn't like the big cities of Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum. It was just this hardworking, blue-collar town. It was a city of commerce. Um, it, it sat on the crossroads of some major um, uh, uh, roads in antiquity. And because of that, it, lots of commerce came to it. It sat at the head of the valley that Pergamum was at. Therefore, trade and goods had to come through Thyatira to get to the, the main capital. I kind of think of it like Greeley. Greeley is kind of a blue-collar town, is it not? Or maybe think of it like this. You know, how many know, even in Colorado, you're, you're, you know, Commerce City? Commerce City, people don't come to Colorado to go to Commerce City. 
right? They're like, you got the big capital, Denver, and you got the beautiful mountain towns and these things. People aren't coming here for Commerce City, but how many know Commerce City is a pretty important city? It sits on the major intersection of uh, I-25 and I-70, and, and major commerce of Colorado comes through that place. This is kind of the way that we can think of Thyatira. It wasn't extravagant. People didn't, you know, they weren't going there for football games. I don't know. Or whatever games there were. They went to Ephesus for those games, those, those um, things like the Olympics. Um, but... <clears throat> Because of this, they had many, um, many craftsmen, leather workers, wool workers, farmers, ranchers, tanners. There was a lot of trade happening in Thyatira. In fact, uh, according to Acts 16, 14, Lydia, who was a disciple of the Apostle Paul and who supported Paul on his missionary journeys, she was a seller of purple and she was from the town of Thyatira. Um, one distinguishing characteristic of Thyatira is that it had more trade guilds than any other city its size. Uh, trade guilds are what we would, would be best um, compared to as what you and I would know as like uh, trade unions. How many of you are part of or have been part of a union before in your life? I've been part of a union before and you know you have to pay your union dues and there's union meetings and they kind of help and I don't know. Um, but um, Thyatira had more trade unions, if you will, than any other city its size. And just like all the other cities in Asia and the Roman Empire, they attempted to appease these false gods in order to be blessed in their trade. Okay, so the sacrifices they were offering in the temples, it was to appease these gods in order to have their trade blessed. And I don't know that how many of them actually believed and um, that God, the gods were actually blessing them for the sacrifice, or if it was more part of being part of the club, the cultural context, being part of the club so that you could remain um, part of the, the benefit of these trade unions. But you had to go to these, they had union meetings, if you will. And uh, they did, you know, how many of you, um, you, say, you say grace before you eat, you, you bless your food. How many of you do this? That's good. It's good to do, right? It's good to bless your food. Be, thank the Lord for it. Well, they had what was called heathen grace. And what they would do is they would pour out um, a cup of wine before and after meals as an offering, a sacrifice to their false gods. The food at these union meetings had always been sacrificed to false idols. And then often towards the end of the meeting, the temple prostitutes were invited in and they would engage in lots of bad things. Okay? This is what union meetings were like back in Thyatira in, during the Roman Empire. How many think those would be good meetings for good Christian boys and girls to go to? Right? So we see here there's a problem developing, right? This is a similar problem we've seen to all the other um, cities that the churches were in. There's a problem for our early Christians, the er our early brothers and sisters in Christ who put their faith in Jesus. They were in a very difficult situation, if you can imagine. You know, how many of us, our work situations, living situations, like they can be difficult, but how many of that's a very difficult situation because Christian merchants, tradesmen, craftsmen, farmers, ranchers, who refused to engage in these union meetings were putting their business in jeopardy and inviting persecution into their lives because they are counterculture. Okay, well, let me just say something. As a Christian, if you're just going with the flow with culture, you're going the wrong direction. 
Okay, making a stand for Jesus is swimming upstream. All right, um, you have to be a little bit counterculture to be a Christian. I'm not saying being mean or weird or invite unnecessary strife into your life, but being a Christian is a little bit uh, counterculture. You know, in America, one of our big uh, things is because we are such a prosperous nation. Is there's a um, we worship money in this nation. We worship sports teams in this, in this nation. Now, I'm not saying there's, no, there's nothing wrong with having money. There's nothing wrong with watching sports, that kind of stuff. But how many of that stuff can become idols in our lives? And I just submit that to you. I'm not going to tell you what you can or can't do or should and shouldn't do. I'm just saying ask the Holy Spirit. I oftentimes, there's things I love to do. There's things I um, love very much. I love hiking. I love running. There's things I love doing in my life. And I oftentimes will hold those things before the Lord and like, Lord, I just submit this to you. I don't want this to become bigger than you are in my life. So again, here we see there's immense pressure to conform to the patterns of the world in Thyatira. Okay, so that's kind of the uh, cultural context, historical context. Let's break down uh, the scripture. One thing to note that I haven't really mentioned in any of these messages is that Jesus always began his message to each church with a description of himself. You know, we see John, he he has this, I saw Jesus and his head and hair are white as well as white as snow, his eyes are flames of fire. Um, And then Jesus, when he addresses each church, he, he has a description of himself and the description of himself is different for every single church. Um, a revelation of his glory and a revelation of his nature he, he offers to each church. The description uh, of his divine attributes always pointed to the sufficiency of himself to solve whatever problems they were facing or whatever errors they were encountering in their own lives. Okay? So if you go back and read those, you'll see Jesus, you know, and I'll give you an example. Um, it says this, Revel, uh, Revelation 2.18 he says, we'll just begin here, to the angel of the church in Thyatira, Thyatira right? And by the way, we'll pause here real quick. When he says to the angel of the church in Thyatira, the, the, the word angel there is the word messenger, and that can be an angelic messenger or that can be a human messenger. In this case and in this context, we believe that the Lord is addressing the local pastor, the, the bishop, the local pastor of the church. He says this, the angel of the church in uh, Thyatira, right? These are the words of the Son of God whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. He says, I am the son of God. I mentioned a minute ago that there's temples to uh, the, uh, Apollo in Thyatira. And Apollo was a, a false um, uh, god who was thought to be the son of Zeus. And here in this city, you have a temple that's, that's thought to be, of Apollo, thought to be the son of Zeus. And Jesus comes along and says, no, I'm the son of God. You live in this city and you live in the, the place of this darkness, but I want you to know I'm the true son of God. I am the son of God, unequaled, unparalleled, and unmatched in splendor. He says, my eyes are like blazing fire. He's saying, I am the God who sees. In fact, that's the title of our message today is the God who sees. Jesus is saying to this church, and, he, and really every church, but I think especially this one, he's saying, I see you. I see through you. I see for you. I have eyes of flames of fire. Again, this is the most insignificant city of the seven. And Jesus is saying, I see, even though you're insignificant in comparison to these other major cities, I see you. You're significant to me. And he's, and it, and he's communicating this. My eyes of love will ignite your heart if you let them. 
My eyes will ignite your heart if you let them. And they will shake everything in your heart that um, is coming between you and me. I am the God who sees. This morning, church, I just want you to see, I want you to understand Jesus sees you. He sees your home. He sees your job. He sees your relationships, your marriage. He sees your motives. Sometimes you're doing something, and you're like, I think I'm doing this for the right motives. But God, you know my heart better than I do. And God will test your motives, and God will, you know, those kind of things. He knows your insecurities. He sees your struggles. He is the God who sees. This reality that he's the God who sees was comforting to them, and it should be comforting to us. It's comforting, and it, it should be both comforting, but also sobering. Because he's, he is the God who sees. He is the God who interacts. He is the God who is working in our lives every day in and out. He's the God who sees. Okay, verse 19, he's going to talk about the accommodation. He says, I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. That's quite the accommodation that the Lord gives them. He says, I, I see um, your deeds and your love. Thyatira was the only church of the seven that Jesus said, I, I see your love and your deeds. Um, and much more. There was no other church of the seven that he says, I see both of these. Jesus commended Ephesus for their deeds, but rebuked them for losing their first love, right? In a few weeks, we'll cover uh, Sardis and Laodicea, and we'll see that um, he didn't rebuke them for their lack of love, but he did rebuke them for their lack of deeds. He says, I found your deeds incomplete. But this is the only church where he says, I see your love, I see your good deeds, I see your faith, I see your perseverance, and I see that you're doing more than you did at first. In other words, you're growing in your relationship with me. There's an upward trajectory here. How many know that when you come to Jesus, the most extravagant service and love of your heart should not be the day you got saved. You should be growing in your relationship with Jesus. And he says to this church, you're, you're on a growth trajectory. You're serving more, you're loving more, you're giving more. Listen, if you're pulling back from serving, if you're pulling back from worship and your devotion for the Lord, you're going in the wrong direction. But Jesus says, you guys are going in the right direction. There's a growth in your life. Then we get to verse 20. Jesus is going to confront a weakness within the church and a huge problem within their church. It's this, verse 20. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and eating the food sacrificed to idols. Okay, so they got a big deal here. There's, there's a, a woman run a wild within the church who's misleading Jesus' servants into sexual immorality and eating food sacrificed to idols. Before we break down who Jezebel is, I want to highlight this word tolerate. He says, you tolerate this woman. In other words, you shouldn't be tolerating this woman, but you are. <clears throat> How many know that in our current day and age, tolerance is portrayed as like this grand spiritual virtue? Be more tolerant. Okay. That can be good and it can be bad. But I just want to say that tolerance is not a spiritual virtue. Amen. Tolerance is not, okay, we are not called to tolerate one another. We're called to love one another. Love is a spiritual virtue. Okay, we're not called to tolerate each other at any expense. We're called to love one another at every expense. Love is a spiritual virtue, and tolerance is a, actually a cheap counterfeit for love. So um, 
Tolerance is not a spiritual uh, virtue. Um, in fact, sometimes we're not supposed to tolerate things. In fact, it was Ephesus. They were commended for what they didn't tolerate. Jesus, I, 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 you, you have this in favor. You're not tolerating um, certain, certain things within your church. And how many know that love, love isn't just a good, happy feeling? It, it involves feelings. It involves emotions. But sometimes love says no. Sometimes you tell your kids no because you love them, right? Um, sometimes God tells us no because he loves us. Sometimes love says no. Sometimes love says, hey, man, you're, you're going off the rails here. I love you. What's going on with you? Like, that's love. Sometimes love's a little bit confrontational. This is why Jesus is speaking to this church and, and confronting their weaknesses because he loves them. Amen. This is why you need brothers and sisters in Christ around you that when they see some of your rough edges and someone can speak into your life and say, I see you and hey, can I pray for this? And hey, I think you're a little off here. You need someone like that in your life. Amen. On that note, I just want to encourage you, go to the men's and women's ministries on Tuesday nights or the youth ministries or find a city group to be part of. And by the way, this Tuesday, men, MJ is making his famous green chili. So, six o'clock, come get some green chili. It's going to be gluten-free this time. There's a couple guys who couldn't have it because of the last time. So we were, sitting, we were sitting at our table a couple weeks ago, and Pastor Matt is asking, like, hey, I need some volunteers to bring food over the next few weeks. And I sit next to MJ, and I just raised his hand up for him. I said, <laughs> You're, you need to do this. So, all right. So come for the food. Stay for the tough love. Okay. <laughs> Back to the message. <clears throat> so love requires us, love requires of us actually more than just tolerance. Tolerance is like just putting up with people. Love actually requires much more than that. What do we want to do? We want to love what God loves, hate what he hates. We want to tolerate what God wants to tolerate and not tolerate what God does not want to tolerate in our lives. In this case, they were tolerating this woman named Jezebel. And she was driving a wedge between the Lord's servants and him and his followers. Listen, if there's ever a teaching that drives a wedge between Jesus and his followers, I can assure you that God opposes that teaching. And in this case, um, for the sake of compliance, for the sake of going with status quo in the culture, these Christians were like, it's pretty hard. It's, it's rough on business to not go to these trade unions, to not go to these meetings, to not engage in whatever is going on in these meetings. And Jesus says, I don't like this. You're tolerating this behavior, this teaching that she's giving because it's driving a wedge between me and my servants. All right, who's this Jezebel? It's possible, but I think unlikely, that that was her actual name. That was her real name. Um, it's very unlikely that that was her real name if she was a Jewish convert because Jewish people do not name their daughters Jezebel. There's a good reason for that. In fact... I'll just say, if, you have a, if you're pregnant and you're having a girl, you, you can rule this one out. Don't name her Jezebel or Delilah or, you know, why? Because um, if she was a Jewish convert, it was really unlikely, possible, but probably still not the case if she was a Gentile convert. Um, why? Because in the Old Testament, Jezzy was not a good girl. <laughs> Jezzy was a naughty girl, okay? She was a bad queen, and her husband was a bad husband, and Satan wreaked havoc on Israel because of their terrible leadership. And by the way, okay, and so, what this, so if you want to read about that, 1 Kings 16 through 22 talks a lot about Ahab and Jezebel 
And this is what I think Jesus was doing in this case. I think Jesus was highlighting a spirit that she was operating under. A spirit of Jezebel. And I just want to say the spirit of Jezebel and what it does and what it tries to accomplish, which I don't have time to get a ton into, is a real thing. I've seen it. I've interacted it. It hates the anointing. It has a counterfeit anointing. It goes after leadership. It is a bad thing. And so Jesus is highlighting this spirit that this woman is operating under. It says this, she calls herself a prophet. And by the way, let me just say this too, the spirit of Jezebel, it's not gender specific. I've seen men under the spirit of Jezebel. I've seen, it doesn't have to, it's not always a woman with a strong personality or a strong leadership gifting in her life, right? Okay, a lot of times strong women who have a leadership gifting in their life get labeled as Jezebel and that's not fair and that's not okay. But I've seen this spirit on men. I've seen this spirit on women. It's not specific to that. You can have a spirit of Ahab. Ahab was Jezebel's husband. Ahab was this passive man that was allowing Jezebel to kind of run the show. You can, women can have the spirit of Ahab as well. And so she calls herself a prophet. So she's a self-appointed prophet. In my opinion, she was not a sanctioned member of the leadership team in Thyatira. Notice what Jesus didn't say. He didn't say of this woman, you call her a prophet, or you anointed her as prophet before the church, and now she's, she's an ordained prophet for the church. He didn't say that. He says she calls herself a prophet. And so he's saying, you got this woman, and maybe there's some giftings there. Um, in my opinion, she didn't know Jesus. She wasn't walking with the Lord. But perhaps she was operating under a um, demonic spirit that was giving her insight into the, the spiritual realm or into people's lives. That is the case sometimes. People who are psychics and those kind of things, oftentimes they're drawing on the demonic realm to gain information about people. And I think that was probably the case with this woman, Jezebel. She calls herself a prophet, and I think she's uh, a false prophet. You know, the, the title of this message is The God Who Sees. Um, but Thyatira had many lessons and warnings in leadership. And so if you aspire to be a leader, you are a leader. I think there's a lot of lessons in leadership for this church. Here's, here's a, a point I want to make to leaders. Be careful who you appoint as leaders in your sphere of influence. We need to be careful who we appoint as leaders within the church. Um, but also, perhaps more importantly, we need to be careful about who we allow to have influence within our groups and within our church. Even if someone is, they're saved, they love Jesus, you know this, even if they're saved, they're gifted, and they're anointed for ministry, does not mean you automatically give them a title and a platform. Sometimes you see someone who's undeveloped, um, but you could see there's a, there's a gift and, and a calling on their life, there's an anointing on their life. Um, you, can, you can prematurely promote that person to a position that will hurt them and hurt people around them. Oftentimes you have to let people develop the character that's needed to sustain um, that platform. So um, you don't want to promote people until they have proven character, until you know they're submitted to spiritual authority. Um, and I've seen that done many times. Okay. And so verse 21 so this is lesson leadership. Verse 21, I have given her time to repent of her immorality. The, the King James Version says fornication there. Uh, but she is unwilling. Okay, now think of it. I've given her time to repent. Thank God, by the way, that the moment we mess up, he doesn't automatically expose our stuff to the world. I'm very thankful for that. 
Um, and even if, we, even if we do stumble and we're, uh, and we're sincere in our hearts to follow God, how many know God gives us grace and God gives us time to sort it out and to get help oftentimes? I'm thankful for that. And this person who, in my opinion, didn't even know Jesus, Jesus said, I, I'm still giving her time to repent, but she is unwilling to change her ways. She's unwilling to repent. How many of there's a difference between some people don't know how to get free, right? There's a difference between not knowing how to get free and unwilling to be free. Okay, some people just don't know how to get free, and they need someone to come along with them and help them and the Holy Spirit to gain insight in life of how to get free. Some people are unwilling to be free. In fact, Jesus, when he was ministering to um, people, there was, there was a particular instance where Jesus comes to this man who's paralyzed, and he says, do you want to be made well? And we look at that, and we think, what a stupid question. But Jesus actually asked, do you want to be made well? Because to, to an extent, we have to want to be free in order to, for the Lord to come alongside of us to help us be free. This woman didn't want to be free. Do you want to be healed? Do you want to be free? It's a good question. Some people are content in their brokenness. Some people don't want to be free. Some people like being a victim. Okay, do you want to be free? But church, make no mistake, especially if you're in a leadership position and you're unwilling to repent, God will not allow you to exercise influence forever. And that should be sobering. God will, I've seen this happen. God gives time and then he will expose things if people are unwilling to repent. And this is for your sake, for the sake of the person who's unwilling to repent and the sake of the people surrounding you, the sake of your followers. He, it happens all the time where you see ministers who are exposed because they're engaged in, you know, because whatever arrogance came into their life and they thought, oh, the grace of God is on my life and I'm gifted and I could just kind of live any way I want. God will still use me. And God uses them for a long time. But eventually there comes a day where that person gets exposed and God says, enough is enough. This isn't good for your heart. This isn't good for the people following you. This is a big deal. And he says of Jezebel, she refuses to be free. Verse 22, this is, this is kind of intense. Verse 22, it says this, I will cast her on a bed of suffering and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of their ways. Again, this seems harsh, this seems intense, but really this is a grace message. Jesus is saying, I've given this woman who's doing terrible things to my church time to repent. And then he says, these, my servants, my followers, I, and I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, interrupt their lives. I'm going to bring hardships into their lives unless they repent of their ways. And he keeps giving them time. Jesus says, I will make things difficult for her and for my followers for, who are following her ways. Okay, this is the God who sees. This is the God who interacts. This is his love. This is his mercy keeping his servants from going the wrong way. How many know that the children of Israel throughout their course of history, oftentimes they went the wrong direction and God would bring correction to the children of Israel. In the book of Hosea, God uses a metaphor, the whole, really the whole book is a metaphor, to describe spiritual unfaithfulness, the, the spiritual unfaithfulness of Israel. He equates their, their chasing after false, false gods as spiritual adultery. Because how many know that we are betrothed to Christ? The bride of Christ is betrothed to Christ. We're married to Jesus. So if you're married to Jesus and you're dabbling in Buddhism and signs of the Zodiac and psychics, like you're cheating on God. Like it's spiritual adultery, okay? So in the book of Hosea, he used this uh, illustration. And look how he disciplines Israel. So 
It says this, Hosea 2.5. She, speaking of Israel, said, I will go after my lovers who give me my food and my water and my wool and my linen, my olive oil and my drink. Okay, so Israel's chasing after these false gods. And this is the same type of pressure felt like those living in Thyatira. Um, They were participating in those trade unions because there was a financial security incentive involved in that. And in, in, in Hosea, they're, they're chasing up these false gods, thinking that these false gods and, and interacting with these other nations would bring security to them. Verse 6, this is what God does. This is his love and his leadership and his discipline in our lives. Therefore, I will block her path with thorn bushes. I will wall her in so that she cannot find her way. She will chase after her lovers, but not catch them. She will look for them, but not find them. Then she will say, I will go back to my husband as at first. For then I was better off than now. The Lord will oftentimes do that to us. How many times have we experienced the Lord's discipline when we go after something thinking, this will satisfy the desires of my hearts, and then God makes that thing utterly unsatisfying to your heart. It doesn't satisfy the needs of your heart. He lets you kind of run around, and he hedges you in, and then you're like, you know what? Life was better with Jesus. I'm going back to Jesus. I'm going back to my first love. I'm going back to my husband who redeemed me. Life was better with him. He is the bread of life, the only bread that will satisfy the desires of your hearts. That's what it means when Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. I will satisfy the hunger, the desires of the human soul. He is the bread of life. And when we chase other lovers, we chase other meals, if you will, God will often, to the believer, make those things utterly unsatisfying for our hearts so that we have to come back to our Lord Jesus where we, our hearts are satisfied. Amen? Again, I mentioned that I think Jezebel, in this context, is not a born-again person. And let me give you a reason for that. In verse 21, it says, I have given her time to repent of her immorality, which is the, the word fornication in the King James but she's unwilling. The word, how many of the word fornication? It's, it's sexual relations outside of marriage, okay? It's not adultery. Adultery is um, cheating on, a, on your spouse. So that's how he addresses her. I've given her time to repent of her fornications, but she was unwilling. Then you go to verse 22. I will cast her on a bed of suffering and make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of their ways. Notice when, he, when he's addressing Jezebel, he says, she's fornicating, when he addresses the follower, his followers, he's saying they're committing adultery. That's why I believe that Jezebel wasn't actually a true follower of the Lord Jesus. But in spite of all that, he still gives her time to repent of her ways. Verse 23, this is getting even more intense. He says this, I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches the hearts and minds and will repay each of you according to your deeds. Wow, this is intense. Guys, this is the Lord Jesus speaking from heaven to the Apostle John. This is after the Gospels of grace had already been written, right? But he's saying, I still interact. I'm the God who sees. I'm the God who interacts. Personally, um, perhaps there was a literal element to that. But personally, I believe strike her, her children dead speaks of the fruit of her false teaching. Jesus says, I'm going to actually make an example of her. I'm going to demonstrate to the churches the fruit of her false teaching leads to death. 
Look what Jesus said. I think this is a cool illustration. Look what Jesus said speaking of his own ministry and of John the Baptist's ministry. The Pharisees had been questioning Jesus, and they're like, you know, trying to figure out if he's from God or good or bad. And Jesus said this, uh, Luke 7, 33. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say he has a demon. The son of man, that's Jesus speaking of himself, uh, came eating and drinking, and you say he is a a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Watch this, verse 35. But wisdom is proved right by all her children. Wisdom is proved right by her children. Jesus says, you want to know if I'm from God? You want to know if I'm from heaven? Look at my children. Look at the fruit of my ministry. Look at the fruit of what I'm doing. How many know that wisdom has children and those children bring life? How many know that the spirit of Jezebel has children and those children bring death? Jesus is saying, I'm going to confront the children of Jezebel, the fruit of her ways. I'm going to demonstrate to the church that, that those ways lead to death. And I think it, we unequivocally have answered that question some 2,000 years later, that the ways of fornication, adultery, if you will, and uh, idol worship will lead only to spiritual death and compromise. <clears throat> All right, in conclusion, I'm going to just read a couple more sections of this. We'll get ready to close here. He says this, verse 24. This is where it kind of, ah, you can take a breath here. Now I say to the rest of you living in Thyatira, Thyatira, who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned uh, Satan's so-called secrets, I will, not impose on, uh, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on what, to what you have until I come. So again, there's a group of people that were conforming to the, her teachings, and there's obviously a large part of the church who were wise enough to not conform to her teachings. But Jesus really here is saying to the leadership, you got a problem in the church and you got to address it. Sometimes you got to do business. But he says to the rest of them, you're doing good. Hold on what you have. You're growing in faith. You're on the right trajectory. Verse 26, he says this, to the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over nations. That's huge. Verse 27, that one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash into pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my father. I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus says, in the age to come, the one who rules their soul in this life will be given authority in the age to come and will be given authority over nations. This is just absolutely staggering. He says, I will give them for just as I received authority from my father. So it matters, church, how we live. It matters how we interact. It matters what we do here and now in this life. Because the age to come, there are, there are, uh, there's authority and there's, there, God wants to rule and reign with us. We are destined to rule and reign with the Lord Jesus forever. Verse 28, he says, I will give that one the morning star. Okay, who or what is the morning star? I would say the morning star is a who. Uh, Revelation twenty two sixteen. this is right at the end of the book of Revelation, says this, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. Jesus says of himself, I am the bright morning star. Jesus promises that to the one who is victorious will be rewarded with Christ himself. How many know that in Genesis 15, 1, what the Lord said to Abraham, 
After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in the vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. Jesus offers himself as reward for those who live according to his ways, walk according to his ways. Amen and amen. Why don't you stand to your feet? I'm going to pray for you. What is the Holy Spirit speaking to you today through this message? I think there's so many different applications. He is the God who sees. He's the God who interacts. He's the God who knows. Maybe there's some of you here, you're going through really hard times and you're like, man, this is tough. But listen, God sees what you're going through. He sees those hardships. He sees slander. He sees financial pressures. He sees those things. Maybe you're here on the opposite and there's some secrets that you need to deal with in your life. And God's giving you time to repent of those things. He's the God who sees, but he's also the God who gives time. He's the God who gives grace and he's merciful to us. So I'm going to pray and whatever the Lord is speaking, whatever the Holy Spirit's communicating to you today, I just want you to lean into that and lean into what he was communicating to this church in Thyatira. Father, we love you. We thank you for your revelation to these seven churches of Asia, God, that you love them so much that you spoke this message specifically catered to them, Lord. And I ask God this morning that you would take this message to Thyatira and you would specifically cater to the hearts of every individual in this place, Lord. And, and whether it be those in leadership who need to have your voice speak into their lives or whether it be those who are in a hard place, they need to know that you are the God who sees or whether it be those, God, who are walking in compromise and, and need to know um, that you want to set them free, Lord God. I just pray for that application to come upon every heart right now today in Jesus' name, Lord. We thank you, God. You love us. We are heaven-bound. Eternity is ours, Lord. You, Lord, are our exceeding great reward. Lord, let us lean to you, Lord God, our exceeding great word, the bread of life, the only one who can satisfy. We love you. We thank you for today. In Jesus' mighty name, and everyone said, amen. amen. All right. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful week.